Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris, where we discuss the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture, edited by Jim Harris, and music by Mike Hall. You know, Jim, I'm feeling a song. I'm feeling very musical today. Musical. Musical. I'm feeling very musical. Is there a particular time of day that this song is set? Usually, this music that I'm feeling is set more towards the night. Ah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what we're going to talk about today. Hear it. Feel it. Secretly possess you. Open up your mind, let your fantasies unwind In this darkness that you know you cannot find Let the dream begin, let your darker side Power of the music of the We are going to talk about Phantom of the Opera. Generally speaking, this would be the most vocal I would be in singing songs. As any of you that have listened regularly know... Anytime we talk about anything musical, I tend to sing a lot. However, in the reviews that I was looking at and reading about the Phantom of the Opera movie, the biggest thing that was making everybody angry was people that can't sing perfectly shouldn't sing these songs. (laughs) So now I am scared to ever sing these songs. (laughs) Now I strangely feel like I should sing the songs. Please don't. Please don't. I want to continue to like them. Let's get us started. Jim, what was your introduction to Phantom of the Opera? Well, Phantom of the Opera was the first musical that I ever saw in person. And this is going back a bit to, like, the Phantom of the Opera debuted in 1986, and I started college in 1989. So I'm not sure exactly what year of college it was. Sometime in the early 90s, and I'm not even sure if we went to New York, because I went to school in Boston, so we may have taken a train to New York, I'm not absolutely certain, but we got some, like, college discount thing, where a group of us got, like, the cheapest possible seats in the worst possible part of the theater (laughs) to see Phantom of the Opera, and it was the first time that I had ever seen a musical in person. It was also like the first professional stage performance that I had ever seen. Like I had gone in high school, we had gone on field trips to see some really bad plays and stuff like that. Nothing that I would really say was super professional. So this was the first like major big production that I ever saw in person and definitely the first musical. So I was blown away by it. I mean, I'd always been someone who liked music for the lyrics more than the music. So a musical where you actually have to pay attention to the lyrics because that's the whole like story and stuff. Not all musicals are like this, but most of Phantom of the Opera is sung. So you do have to pay attention to what they're saying in the songs. So that was my exposure to it. And I I greatly enjoyed it. And then I would go on to see it a couple of more times later in the 90s as an adult when I had more money and could afford nicer seats. And I know one of the three times I saw it was with the, I don't know if it was the full original cast, but at least the original leads who played in the original performance on Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, I've, I've had the soundtrack in a couple of different formats. So I probably, not probably, I have definitely listened to the songs far more often than I have seen either the stage performance or the movie, which mm-hmm. we'll get to. How about you? 
For me, my first introduction was actually the movie. Oh, wow. So that might be a better, that may be because of our age difference. I mean, the movie didn't come out until like 2004, 2004. Okay. I, I was never exposed to musicals or anything as a child or growing up or anything of any sort. And this was a time when I was really getting heavy into music and into heavy music. So it actually ended up being, I think I mentioned it before. I had a girlfriend once that introduced me to like black metal and death metal and stuff. And it was actually her, as she was introducing me to these other genres of dark, heavy music, she was bringing up inspirations, and she talked about Phantom of the Opera as being a major inspiration for a lot of these musicians. And I was like, I might have heard the name, but I had no idea what it was. And it was just so happened to be the movie had just come out on DVD, so we rented it, we watched it, and I was just absolutely blown away by it. Fast forward, I don't know how many years, but a different girlfriend knew. I mean, it's Phantom of the Opera has been a staple for me since that first time viewing it. And a girlfriend that I had knew how much I liked it. It was on tour. It was coming here. So she got us tickets. And as you said, they were the cheapest possible tickets because we were college students. (laughs) But I was disappointed in how different it was, but overjoyed in how much better the singing was. Okay. So it just blew me away. And the the genius of how the stage performance is done, the set changes and stuff like that, the costume changes, how fast they are, everything is just phenomenally done. I mean, at that point, it had been 15 years or so worth of practice and figuring out and everything. (laughs) So there was that. And then actually, I've only seen it live twice. The second time, actually, it's kind of ironic. It just came up on my Facebook memories yesterday as being seven years ago yesterday was when I saw it the second time. Oh, wow. Okay. Which, still not the best seats, but better seats this time. I've been known for a lot of my friends as being a huge fan of the opera, like super nerd. Are you a, a musical nerd in general, or is it just a fan of the opera? I like musicals in general, except for... Now, I guess this kind of comes into why I like fan of the opera. Musicals in general for me are just too poppy. The songs are too upbeat, happy feeling, too much pop music, not enough music music. Whereas Fam of the Opera is centered around the music music. Not just singing, but the actual like orchestra and you know, all the actual instruments, as well as the lyrics and the singing. Okay. All of it's phenomenal. So that's really what pulls me in. Other other musicals. They've got to have something to them to pull me in, like South Park being funny or something like that. (laughs) Otherwise, other musicals, I just, I get bored because there's just not enough to it. It's interesting that you saw the movie first, because again, I would say that for me, the Phantom of the Opera was largely an audio experience because I've only seen it in person three times. And it's not like when it first came out, it was only a stage production. It wasn't like I could go, hey, let's go back and see it again because Mm -hmm. it was expensive even for the cheap tickets. So mainly it was, I just listened to the soundtrack a lot, only saw the stage production three times, probably saw the movie maybe a half a dozen times. So it's definitely one of those things where I think about More about, hey, there's like five or six songs I know that I've heard a lot, and I like those. The movie made the story easier to follow for me. (laughs) Not that it has like a complex story. You can follow along. But in the stage performances, like stuff's happening, and you get the general idea of what's happening, especially the important elements of the story. But the entire narrative framework is much easier to follow in the movie. And you saw that first. Yeah. So you kind of had... I don't know if that was better for putting it in the songs in context because you had the story. Plus, the movie was a little bit more, there was a lot of singing, but there was also a fair amount of just spoken dialogue, too. Yeah. More so in the movie than in the stage production, which is almost all sung. Which actually kind of bothers me about it because there's a lot of lines that are spoken in the movie that when they're sung in the stage performance, I'm like, why? Yeah, there's a lot of things that it's like, it's a little bit harder to follow along what's being said, and it doesn't really need to be sung. Right, and it doesn't sound right being sung, because there's, in those cases, usually a transition where there isn't really any music behind it or anything, and they're just singing to be singing. Right. And it doesn't make sense to me. And they just did straight up dialogue in the movie for those parts, and that that probably made it easier for people to follow. 
So what what drew you into liking the songs or the story or, or whatever? What what do you like so much about it? It was again, I didn't have a lot of experience with other musicals both then and now. I mean, I, I have seen I would say I am a very casual musical fan. I don't seek the genre out. But I have actually seen quite a few musicals, not too many live in person. I've seen a fair number of them, but Phantom of the Opera is the only one I've seen more than once for mm-hmm. live stage productions. It's the only one that made me come back to see it again. I would say that the themes of, I identify with the Phantom. I mean, there obviously are a lot of other people, mostly girls, <laughs> that I went to see uh, the original show with. Really like the the romance aspect of it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the Phantom and Raoul both being sort of a love triangle with Christine, and then which guy does she choose? They were very much into that. Mm-hmm. I just very much identified with the Phantom, the solitude, the loneliness, the darkness, the of the world, but not in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, the beast whose only beauty was his voice. And the only thing that really connected him with life, both partial for his livelihood and also his life was music. I mean, I don't have the musical connection, but that idea of only having like one thing that made you feel like you were connected to the world and then having an inability to connect with the world in all other aspects, that spoke to me as why it seemed to draw me in and I kept coming back to it. How about you? Very similar. I connected to the fam as well. Similar reasons, but also reconnected back to the romance aspect of it, like you said, of feeling like because of my physicality being a short guy in particular, it almost doesn't matter how good I am at anything else because the perfect woman that I'm always chasing will never even look twice at me because of this physical abnormality, so to speak. That's always been something I struggle with. And I think it's, it really kind of stems back to, there's like a a girl in high school that just major crush on that was, you know, I talked to all the time and everything. And she was always very friendly and nice to me. And I had a friend one time talk to her about possibly dating me. And her response was, oh, he's fantastic. I just could never date him because he's short. Well, that's harsh. Yeah. And that, that was, and that, so that's always kind of echoed in the back of my head. And it's been recurring throughout my life. I mean, it's pretty standard for, you know, a lot of women like taller guys. I'm oh, taller and that hasn't helped me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just a matter of height. Right. I, all, all I'm going with that is just the feeling of that physical abnormality, that one minor physical defect. And doesn't matter how good I am at anything else because I'll never get what I want. And then also the aspect of that feeling making me bitter, which is probably why I'm never, the actual reason why I'm never going to get what I want. And I think that's an interesting aspect to this story is if he wasn't so angry and bitter, he probably could have won her over. Even despite the physical abnormality. Correct. The the disfigurement, yeah. I think the ending of it kind of showed that, like, hey, if you were a more kind, caring person... Maybe this would have worked. That aspect of the story I really drew to, but also the, like I said, the music. And I know you, you're a big lyrics guy. I'm a big music person, and the way that it sounded was phenomenal to me. So I know we'll get into it here in a little bit when we kind of compare and contrast the movie versus the stage show. But being introduced to the movie first, I've seen the movie countless times. Such a big fan. I've actually even read the book. I had one of my friends that I really connect with about *Phantom of the Opera* bought me the book. And I read that, and when you see how it was adapted, like what parts were and weren't and stuff like that, very, very interesting to watch and compare and contrast. And when I read the book, the way that I heard the singing voice of the Phantom in my head was much more similar to Gerard Butler's version of it than the actual like singers in the stage performance. To me, having the darker, more mysterious, more purposefully gravelly voice sounds better to me and more more haunting to me than having the more higher pitched voices and like perfect tones and and i know the character is supposed to be perfect tones but to me there's a there's a somewhere in between where there you can have the perfect tones with the gravelly darkness and to me that's where the perfect voice would lie and i don't know that i've really heard that yet yeah, I think for me, I lack the the knowledge and appreciation of music at that level to really be able to talk about the nuanced differences. Like, I can tell when someone's not a good singer, 
But the difference between someone who is technically proficient and competent and someone who's actually a vastly better vocalist yeah. is I don't have the ear for that. And going back to what I said earlier, how it's been largely an audio experience for me, because I've heard Michael Crawford sing the songs so many more times oh, yeah. than anyone else, that's just what the Phantom is supposed to sound like to me but only because I've heard him sing it thousands of times. And I've only heard Gerard Butler or, or other people who have played him on stage a very small number of times. So that's why for me, it's like anytime I hear anyone who's not Michael Crawford, it doesn't sound right to me, but I can't explain to you why other than that's not the one I know. And that might also go why go to why I like the movie version is because that was my original and I saw that so many times before I heard anything else. Mm-hmm that that's stuck in my head as being the way it should be done. That could be, yeah. If I had seen the movie first, then yeah, I might have been like, hey, this sounds different. But since I, it was the opposite way for me, I don't know if that was. But again, you, unlike me, you've actually studied music. Like, I remember we, we watched, you had the, uh, in addition to the movie, you also have the recording of like the 25th anniversary stage production mm-hmm. that they did in London. And in that, they had whoever was the, the leads at that time did the Phantom of the Opera performance. But at the end, they had Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber came out and they brought out a bunch of other people, like five, like actually Michael Crawford didn't sing, but like five other people who sang the Phantom came out and sang like the greatest hits, like the two or three songs everybody knows. Yeah. And then Sarah Brightman came out and like as soon as she started singing, you were like, wow. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? So there was like something about like her vocal quality that was just immediately obvious to you. What was that? Just like you said, the vocal quality, just how clear and precise the notes are and how powerful it is. So I guess we can kind of jump into that as well. And you notice in that 25th anniversary, they're all mic'd. Yes. And they're not always all mic'd. You know, generally speaking, in, in a lot of musicals, operas in particular, they're singing full voice, and the acoustics in the building bring the sound to you. But in these cases, they're mic'd. And the reason they're mic'd is because in these songs, there's so much variance that a lot of people don't have the full range to be able to hit all those notes with their full voice. And that's where Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman, why they were so perfect for those parts is because they have such a huge range and power behind their voices and sarah brightman's just the best the only comparisons really that do it justice are the singers for a band called nightwish and i think i showed you a version of that where they do a cover version of it Mm -hmm. and they hit a lot of the notes not quite as perfectly as sarah brightman though and part of that wow too is looking at her age i mean she's not old old but Mm -hmm. she's older and a lot of times those your muscles deteriorate and she was still able to hit those notes which, is my, which would be my guess as to why Michael Crawford probably didn't sing that night. Right. Because he's definitely up there in age now. But yeah. even some of the other five of the other fan, there were five other phantoms there that night total. Some of them I could tell when they were hitting the lower notes, it was almost too soft. It was hard to almost make out what they were saying. And some of them had a much more powerful voice that however high or low you could always hear it was crisp and yeah. strong i don't have the right terminology for it that works and, and going with the miking part of the same with the low but also same with the high notes and that's where like the movie version gets a lot of crap too is he can't hit the high notes he has to go into a very very forced falsetto to hit the high notes whereas in the musical version they can hit those notes with a more full voice because they've got that range So that's what I was saying earlier when I say the stage show, much better vocally, but it loses something like you said in the story, and it's also organized differently. And it's also able to bring a lot more things from the book that aren't on the stage show into it. Even though they are mics in that anniversary special that we saw, you also have the acoustic effect of being in the theater. Whether you're mic'd or not yeah. is a different experience than watching the movie, even if you saw the movie in a theater, uh, movie theater. It's not the same right. as, as hearing the acoustics of the live stage performance in a, that type of theater. Yeah. Yeah, at this point, we might as well just kind of jump into compare and contrast the movie versus the stage show. One other thing I wanted to say about the, the story and the songs, though, go, r- just real quick about 
like I said, a lot of the feelings of loneliness and darkness and being outcast and stuff like that. I think that in combination with the strong musical aspect of it is why it's so inspirational for a lot of us in metal is because most of the people that are in metal are there because of the feeling of loneliness and outcast and stuff like that. And that's why they spent so much time on in music is because you want to be able to connect to the outside world, like you said. How else to do that outside of music? If you're really good at music, people are going to listen. So you started off with the stage, so you much prefer the stage show over the movie. Is that accurate? That is accurate. And again, in fairness, I mean, even though I have technically seen the movie more often than I've seen the stage show, I have listened to the songs. So I've just it's been a largely audio experience mm-hmm. to me. I almost kind of like, not that it doesn't have a complex story, but most of the time I just kind of like forget or ignore the story and then mm-hmm. listen to like the five or six songs that are the big songs. Yeah. And then that's what I just listen to over and over again. So the movie I've technically seen more often, and like I had said earlier, is like, oh, some of the, like, the narrative makes a bit more sense. Like what the overall story is makes a lot more sense when you watch the movie. Yeah. For one thing, it's dumb, but I mean, the scene transitions are smooth in the movie. In the stage production, it's amazing to watch and it's impressive to watch, but it's like there are extra dances and extra singing interludes because they need to buy time to change the stage. (laughs) The transition from one part of the performance to the next, they have to give you some, hey, look over here while we're changing the backdrop. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas in the movie, it just smoothly transitions from scene to scene. So that makes it a little bit easier to conceptualize the story. So the audio that you had was of the original cast? Of the original cast, the London performance of the, with the original cast and those songs. Yeah, see, the audio that I had was the movie soundtrack. Oh, that would also be very different. So even when you listen to it, you were listening to the movie. Yeah, and I don't know why. I've always been in a position where I drive a lot. And so I'd play it and just picture it in my head because I've seen the movie so many times I didn't really need it to be playing. I could just (laughs) listen to it and see it. So yeah, there's part of that too. And I know for me, Gerard Butler has very much a rock and roll sound to his voice. I've always been a rock and roll fan, you know, so it sounds natural for me. It doesn't sound forced. It doesn't sound out of the norm for me because that's what I'm used to listening to. But a lot of the criticisms that the movie gets is that he's not that great of a singer. And hate to say it, you don't have to be that great of a singer to be a rock singer. You got to be able to hit some notes. You got to be able to put passion and feeling into it. And I think it's that passion and feeling that's in it because he's an actor. He's able to put that passion and feeling into it in a way that the stage performers can't. And part of that may also be because the stage performers are belting it out, whereas in the movie version, they can act it and then re-record the vocals later. Correct. And they can make multiple takes until they get it right. Yes. Or as close to right as he's going to get. So, yes, Gerard Butler does not hit the notes the way that he should to be that character and the way that the stage performers do. No, he doesn't have the range. No, he doesn't have the perfect enunciation and break between words and everything. I fully agree. I understand all of that. But as far as... Like I was saying before, the sound of the voice, the darkness that it feels, the passion that he portrays in it, that to me is what draws me in and makes me like the movie version of The Phantom more than the stage version. I had heard in one of the stage performances I saw, The Phantom had a darker, deeper voice. I listened to that all day over the movie, but it's only been the one. It seems like all the other ones have a much higher pitched voice. Yeah, and that 25th anniversary special, I, I, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but the younger of the five former Phantoms that came out mm-hmm. was the guy that seemed to have the voice you're describing, that seemed to have more of a rock and roll type, but more of an emotive type mm-hmm. voice, whereas the other ones were more the technically proficient execution. And part of that goes to the miking too, because it's more of a speak singing versus just belting singing. Yeah, I so, could see that. I can understand that being a, a big criticism. One thing that people get wrong, so Christine in the movie, Emmy Rosam, or Rosam, I don't know how you say it right, <laughs> she sang pretty much all of the songs, except for Phantom of the Opera. She couldn't hit those high pitch. I don't remember where I got that information from. I think I actually got it from the credits. If I remember right, they actually brought in, I don't remember if it was Sarah Brightman exactly or not, but it was one of the stage performers sang that song to be able to hit the high notes. 
So I know there's a lot of criticisms for the movie, and like sometimes in that she's singing in that, sometimes she her mouth is closed and it's like she's thinking it. It's because she's not actually singing it. Somebody else is, and she's just mouthing the words with it. It's a weird that the Rotten Tomatoes score for the Phantom of the Opera movie is like weirdly out of balance. Yeah. Like the audience score is much higher, but the critics score is like ridiculously low. Like the critics really hate that movie. Yeah, uh, and mostly because of the vocal performances. Yeah. And, And you can understand that, but this isn't a stage show. It's a movie. Right. And I've been thinking a lot about that too is, A lot of the criticism is, why didn't you just bring the stage performers in and have them be the actors in the movie? Because then they can actually hit the notes. They can sing the songs. They've had the practice. Stage performing is very different than movie acting. Stage performing, there's a lot of big movements and dancing and things like that. You don't have to have the subtle facial expressions because you can't see those anyway from that far away. Whereas movie acting is much more subtle. And to try to bring the stage performers over into being in the movie acting, take the recreation of the producers with Matthew Broderick and how big movements they make and how it doesn't really seem to fit for a movie. And I know it's gotten a lot of criticisms for that. It's because Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane are stage performers. And so they bring that over when they're doing the musical and it doesn't really fit that well for a movie. So you bring actors in, people that can act the parts and hopefully they can sing well enough to do it. Yeah, people who can act and people who can perform to a camera, it's a very different skill set. Yeah, so yeah, the, I mean, I don't know, I've never seen them in anything else, but yeah, the, the stage performers probably would have been pretty clunky as actors. And the probably singing, not as pretty. And that's the other thing, too, is like, yeah, the camera's in your face. I mean, not to say that the cast is unattractive in the stage production, but unless you have, like, front row seats, you really can't see people all that well. In the stage production. (laughs) Well, and a lot of the criticism it gets to is even when the mask gets pulled off of Gerard Butler, he's still fucking Gerard Butler. Yeah. It doesn't look that messed up. You can see they tried to make it look more messed up, but the lighting and stuff, it just didn't really look that bad compared to the stage version and compared to the book. I mean, in the book, he was basically just a skeleton. There's that criticism and a lot of other minor stuff like that. Like, okay, well, they brought some stuff over from the book into the movie. Like, why did they ride a horse for 30 seconds? <laughs> like, well, you don't really know. They kind of cut part of it. So maybe they were riding the horse for longer than that. You don't really know. But that was a big thing in the book and, you know, stuff like that. There's And there's a sword fight in the movie as opposed to, to fireball. the fireball. But again, that's also because they could actually do the scene in the cemetery better, yeah. more effectively in a movie than they could in the stage production. So, yeah, there's, there's stuff like that that was different. Although Uh, I would argue that Fireball would have been better in the movie, too, because one of the big things in the book was he was a magician and they don't really talk about that. that, I mean, it's mentioned that he's a magician when uh, Madame Jury was saying, you know, he's a architecture, designer, performer, musician, magician, you know, all that stuff. That's all from the book. Like he was all those things. In the book, the reason he he knew all the secret passages and all that stuff in the in the opera house is because he Mm -hmm. built. Oh, so he wasn't just living there. He actually... He was the architect for the opera house. And as they were building it, he would go in at night and add the secret passages when nobody else was around. So nobody else knew that they were there. So that's an interesting aspect. Whereas in the movie, in the musical... Actually, in the musical, they don't really say. But in the movie, he was brought there as a child and grew up there and kind of learned it. But in the book, he built it. Yeah, I think I read read some article about that, which happens a lot with book adaptations that they made him a little bit more one-dimensional in the musical and he had a a more multi-dimensional character in the the book and they tried to bring a little bit of that into the movie i mean it's a minor role it doesn't really matter much but and i know she didn't do most of her own singing but i thought Minnie driver was more entertaining as carlotta i mean the character in the stage production has to i think be played by an opera singer to sing the yeah. operatic parts of the performance and Minnie Driver can't sing like that but the acting part of playing the diva was much more I thought comical and entertaining in the movie so much so that it's actually a lot of her lines get stuck in my head after I watch the movie more so than the music does <laughs> there's actually so many times that little lines like throughout life something happens 
And one of her lines goes through my head. I'm like, I know I'm not going to be able to pronounce it well enough, so I don't say it. But I really want to, but nobody would understand it. I mean, she actually can sing. She just can't sing like that. Right. So, yeah, so her lyrics had to be dubbed, but she was a more entertaining character. And again, some of the other supporting characters, again, the narrative just is easier to follow and makes more sense. Mm -hmm. And like we had said earlier, they don't sing everything. So things that could just be accomplished yeah. with dialogue are done. And then you can also do the the flashback sequences make more sense of when we shift from going back in time and also seeing more of the, the Phantom as a kid. So, I mean, being able to do that in the movie allows you to conceptualize maybe a bit more depth to the character mm-hmm. than you can in the stage production. I still don't understand. I, I can understand people, the critics not liking the vocal quality, that the singing wasn't as good. But it's such a stark contrast. I don't know why it, that it's... It was okay. It wasn't so bad that it needed to be trashed critically. Comparatively, the vocal performances are trash in the movie. Comparative. <laughs> if you were to compare it to the professional singers, okay. it, it really is. There's a big difference. But you're going to have that. So mm-hmm. either you accept it for what it is as a movie and not a stage performance, or you just bitch about it because you got nothing better to do. Right. I mean, that, that's kind of the way I look at it. Because, like, I, I mean, I've already talked about Gerard Butler and those differences. But Emmy Rosam, is she a lead opera singer? Absolutely not. But she plays the character well enough. She's warm, young, timid, scared. That's why she sings it the way she, she does, because she's playing the part. She's in character. She's not trying to hit the notes as perfectly as possible. She's playing a part. And that part is timid and scared and young and vulnerable. And if you're belting out these notes perfectly, you're not those things. So there's give and take into it. And and a lot of the reviews that I was looking at in preparation for this to kind of figure out why people hated it so much, and it really just comes down to the vocals are trash, it's not worth it. And that's all they really say for the most part. And some of the stuff, like I said, bring the horse in, you know, whatever. Like, that doesn't really make sense. Why is it there? So one thing I'll say about the stage performance, though, is like you said, it's, it's harder to follow because there's so much going on and you have to hear all the lyrics. But there's more song, there's more lyrics, there's more to the story in the stage performance. Yes. So there's that as well that makes the stage performance better. But I still prefer the movie version because of how well-rounded it is. And it's also something that, I mean, you have that 25th anniversary recording of the stage production, but the movie is something that you can watch multiple times. Even though I prefer the stage performance, I've still seen the movie more often. I would almost say, like, watch the movie and then and listen to the original soundtrack of the stage yeah. performance. I'd agree with that. And then that's maybe the, the best version. I mean, even that 25th, to be honest, even that 25th anniversary special that we watched, I think the part I enjoyed the most was the part at the end where they had everybody came out and they basically re-sung the core <laughs> songs over and over again and even did duets with all of the Phantoms singing together. So it was, that was more almost more entertaining and more interesting to me than watching the entire stage performance again. Yeah. I I think another thing too, so everything I'm saying kind of comes with a grain of salt as well is my vocal range is much more similar to Gerard Butler's. So when I want to sing along, it's easier for me to sing along in the Gerard Butler range than, you know, a good singer's. That's always one of the things I've always wondered about. It's like, do you have to have a some type of musical training or appreciation to actually enjoy a musical? Because there are some people who like won't go see a musical or watch a musical at all. But yeah. people who have studied music or have attempted to play music, I think have generally are more open to watching them and enjoy them, maybe. That's probably because they enjoy music more. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hand in hand. A lot of the people that refuse to go to musicals don't really like music that much. Right. But yeah, it, it probably helps to understand it better. And I know when I'm, a lot of the musicals that are out there, when I'm watching them or listening to them, it is mostly just judging and listening to the vocal tones. I don't really care about the story most of the time. It's just this one in particular is both. I love the story and the music. And it's, I don't know, I kind of want to call it a rock opera. I mean, so much of the music <laughs> is rock-inspired, and it translates to metal very easily. So it's just so similar. It's just everything about this is in my wheelhouse. Anything else about stage performance versus the, the movie for you? 
Not that I can think of, no. Again, it keeps coming back to, it's like almost always, I think of the songs first and foremost. So with that, what's your favorite? Song or performance? For the performance, I would always default to the original cast. So it's, I always think of the songs. And again, just because I've heard them more often, I always think of Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman mm-hmm. singing the songs. But the music of the night, it's probably the most boring choice, but I would have to say that that's probably my favorite song from The Phantom of the Opera. Why? I'm not going to try to sing it. I'm just going to say the line, turn your face away from the garish light of day. I've always loved that lyric. Turn your face away from the garish light of day. Turn your thoughts away from cold, unfeeling light. That whole idea of there's this bright, overwhelming world that I don't know how to go out and interact with. But here in my little under the opera house dungeon where it's dark, it's like, stay here where you're safe in your solitude and you build your own little world. Don't get drawn into that bright world outside. That's not the real world. It's your sort of inner world where you have more control. And if you can bring someone into that world, that makes it more... I would rather have a world like that where I could have a meaningful connection with a small number of people than be like out into that bright world and have a lot of friends and be famous or stuff like that. So that line has always resonated with me for that reason. Yeah. I mean, I I like other parts of the song, but that that line always pulls me in. For me, it's the same song, but for me, it's the vocal performance, the range both in like low note to high note range, but also in soft, quiet, passionate to like big, bold belting. It flows between all of that so well. It's so perfect. In that same line, in the same concept throughout the the song, I've actually, big surprise, related to Star Wars. (laughs) Light side versus dark side. (laughs) To me, it's very, very much the same. The dark is much more passionate and powerful. There's so much more feeling and emotion in it, whereas the light is just so bland. It's boring. It's nothing. It's just there. But there's so much more passion and feeling in the night, in the darkness. I've always loved that, so much so that one of my very good friends, the one that actually got me the book, I was her maid of honor when she got married, uh, my friend Kelsey. And when we did the dance, it was to the movie version of Music of the Night. Oh, awesome. And so that, that was our dance together, and she had to suffer through me singing the, through the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then her gift to me was actually a fan of the opera music box. Oh, cool. Uh, for that. So that's always been something, like I said, something we connected very closely on. We both very much enjoy it. So that's always been easily my favorite song of the actual movie slash stage performance. However, I think I like the song that plays of the credits in the movie, Learn to Be Lonely. Learn to be lonely Learn to be your one companion Never dreamed out in the world There are arms to hold you You've always known Your heart was on Big surprise here, actually. Legit surprise. It's actually the lyrics. As rarely as I listen to lyrics, the lyrics of that song just pull on my heartstring. They really pound on that one feeling. 
the essence of that song is basically accepting your loneliness and learning how to love yourself and learning how to love being alone. If I haven't made it blatantly clear, that kind of explains my existence. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. I mean, the the music of the night's my favorite, but I mean, the one that a lot of, again, this is gender stereotyping, but most of the people who I've either gone to the stage performance with or watched a movie with have been women. So mm-hmm. they really love the All I Ask of You song, which I can understand from the romantic aspect of it and the most simplistic way of defining what it means to be in a couple relationship. Like, wherever you go, I go too. That's all I ask of you. Everybody tried to get laid in college with that line. <laughs> <laughs> Because that was the line in the song that the women seemed to really, really like. As well as, again, that whole love triangle thing of do you pick Raul, do you pick Phantom? And everyone, a lot of them was like, if the Phantom looked like Raul, then there would be no choice. Because he would just be like the perfect guy. Because he would be good looking, rich, and super talented and have all the other stuff too. But it's that whole which one do you pick type of thing. And then the fact that both of them sing the song to her. Asking for mm-hmm. her love is usually what makes that romantic angle big with the ladies. Well, there's also an aspect of the Christine and Raul is a, a mutual <laughs> relationship of... Yes. They love each other equally, and they just want to spend time together. Whereas the Phantom Christine is a worshipping relationship. Yes. And unfortunately, a lot of us get caught up more in the latter, and that's why it doesn't work out. Yes. And so, yeah, I think there's a different aspect to that uh, when you're looking at that. I'd say secondary for me would be Angel of Music. Music and Music of the Night are my two favorite songs. Yeah. Those are the ones that I definitely always think of and sing along in my head. Not, I mean, not that it has anything to do with that song, but just because I was on the whole love triangle thing. I've gotten to various spirited discussions, again, mostly with women, not gender stereotype, of what do you think the meaning of the kiss was when Christine kisses the Phantom at the end? What do you think she was conveying with that? For me, I've always taken that as her showing him she does actually care and that if he would have proceeded in a different way, she could have loved him. That's the way I took it. I've always taken it more as she, I think along the line, she says, like, you're not alone. And she mm-hmm. kisses him to try to say, it's like, you know, you should leave. In essence, you should go out into the world and try. I'm going with Raul, so you, you're not going to have me, but don't just give up on love and life you can go out and not be alone. So I wasn't sure if she was expressing any type of actual romance for him or love for him, more of a a gesture of compassion to don't give up on life, even though you can't have me. And I've always had that spirited debate of, again, it's intentionally open-ended. It's not like it's definitively said, this is the way it is. But I think those are the two different camps yeah. And it's been a lot of spirited discussion with people I've I've seen yeah. hit it with about which way that should be interpreted and what, what it was intended to mean. I saw much more of as uh, I, I do care about you and there could have been a thing, but I've got to go with him. Right. That's I don't know. What what other arguments have you heard on that? It was mainly that. Again, in terms of it was more like you had said earlier, like she had it was more the adulation. I mean, again, part of the story, she actually literally or figuratively imagined him as the angel of music because her father, who was a musician, said that after his death, she would be looked over by the angel of music. And that's who she initially thought he was until she met him Mm -hmm. actually in person. So whether or not he was ever an actual romantic option for her or not. Or was this something that she was idolizing or reconnecting with her connection with her father through? Like, one of the things we had pointed out, like, when, I don't know if it was the movie 
or the 25th anniversary special of like the scene in the cemetery, you were like, oh, that's why they're playing the violin. That was during the, the anniversary when it, I don't know why it clicked, but it just clicked on me. And I'm like, oh, it's because her father played violin and that's why it's violin there. <laughs> Never even thought about it because I don't think about the symbolism things very often. So that's why I wasn't sure if that, if that was what the fandom was supposed to be more symbolic of her connection to her father. But I understand that if there could have been a possible... He, he played that role to get an in. Is you think, the way oh, I you think that's your interpretation? Yeah, because, okay. again, him in that opera house, it's built in a way that he can hear and see just about anything that's going on. So he understands her vulnerabilities, so he plays off of that to get the in to get her to try to make her love him. It was right before the Don Juan triumphant, when they're telling her the plan and how to capture him, she even says, like, if he comes to me, I, I don't think I can say no. Because she does love him. She does care for him. And she understands that, like, the struggle isn't just the Phantom and Raul fighting for her affections. It's her fighting for, I love both of them. So that final kiss to me is uh, just the goodbye. There could have been something, but... I have to go this way because look at what you're doing. You don't have to be alone, but you're forcing yourself to be alone. That also, at familiar. that point in the story, he had murdered a couple of people and was threatening to kill Raul. So, yeah, he was going, you know, too dark and stuff like that. But it was right. also the whole idea, too, is like he taught her how to sing or helped give her the gift of music. So it was sort of like he gave her a non-romantic element to her success as a singer mm -hmm. and her profession. So it's kind of like contingent on her, on him being her tutor. So it's sort of like, what do you pick? Is like the, the person who is helping you for a non-romantic reason or is helping your, your life in a non-romantic dimension? Yeah, it would probably be good if you could also, if it would work to have a romantic dimension with that same person. Or whether or not it was just obvious that she would go with Raul no matter what, even if the Phantom was not as killy darky. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I've also had feminists yell at me that it's also a terrible story because it makes the woman look like she has to choose one man or the other. Or it also makes her look like she chose the money and the good looking guy and ditch the guy she might have been able to be happy with and that has a negative message. But I just like a lot of things. People read into what they want to read into it. So I've also heard people tell me that it's not romantic at all, that it's something that sends a terrible message. Yeah. But it's art. It's and art. the wonderful Again, yeah. thing about art is you take from it what you want to take from it. Yeah, you take from it what you want and you bring to it what you bring to it and that colors your interpretation of it as well. Yeah, exactly. Which is also probably why it was so well-received and, and is so long-enduring. I mean, I never saw it, but I know that they actually did try to make a sequel called Love Never Dies, which was pretty much universally either ignored or criticized. Yeah. Because <laughs> they basically wanted the story to end the way the story ends. I heard that there was a sequel, and I got excited, and I started looking into it and saw the horrific reviews to it and went, ooh, maybe not. Yeah, that, that's the same thing. It's like, I was like, I don't think I even want to learn any more about it. Because again, the open-ended way that both the stage production and the movie ends is that, well, she goes off and she marries Raul and appears to have a relatively happy life, allegedly. I mean, she dies his wife. And it's implied that he's still alive. Like in the movie, he leaves the rose and yep. the, the ring on her grave. And I think there's the implication, even in the stage performance, that he's still around mm -hmm. at the end when she's dead. What did you take from that? Did you ever put any thought into that? In terms of what the rose and the ring meant? Yeah. Yeah, because I wasn't really sure. Because, like, again, she not only did she kiss him, but she gives him the ring that Raul gave her that she didn't want to wear because she didn't want to draw too much attention to the fact that they were engaged. No, which... that, was, that was the ring he gave her. I thought that was a ring that, the marriage ring, I thought that was the engagement no. ring that Raul gave her. When they were down in oh. there, he forced a ring on her finger, and then she oh. takes it off and hands it back to him when she kisses him. Oh, yeah, because he had, like, a, a creepy, like, fake mannequin of her in, yeah. like, a wedding dress thing. Which was actually Emirosum. <laughs> they, they made the plastic version, but it didn't quite look as real enough, so they just painted her face to look plastic and had her stand there. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, okay, so that ring was actually the Phantom's yep. ring, yep. and he was, and she was giving the Phantom's ring back to him. 
So I oh, took that scene as okay. like he went away, but he never went away, and he'd watched over her the rest of her life mm-hmm. from a distance. I don't know. It tracks with the character. Yeah, and I don't, and again, I almost like don't even want to look up if that was even like the plot of Love Never Dies. Were they gonna? Was there another? Were there other interactions between Christine and Phantom after that incident and before her death? Yeah, was that what sure. it was implying? Or one thing I want to hit on too, again coming from the book, is you'd mentioned earlier about him teaching her how to sing and being a mentor and stuff. Mm-hmm. So one of the big things in the book was he was a ventriloquist. And the reason nobody could ever figure out where he's coming from mm-hmm. is because he projected his voice so you could never pinpoint where it was coming from. Oh. So they, they couldn't find him anywhere. And so when he was speaking with her and talking to her, he was projecting his voice so it seemed more godlike, like it was an angel. Okay. And so then when he first appears to her, he's presenting himself for the first time. She'd never actually seen him. It was all just the projected voice. That oh. sounded like oh. it was coming from everywhere. Is that the underlying meaning of the whole, like, it's you they see, but it's me they hear? Yeah. That's yeah, why yeah, that, that kind of thing. Is not like not so much that, like, yeah, I mean, I taught you how to sing, so they're hearing me, but literally the whole ventriloquist thing is like, my yeah. voice is literally coming out of you. In that part in the movie that's not in the stage performance, when Raul, like, jumps down and after him and he's in that those mirrors... That's a big part of the book is he's got a lot of traps built to stop anybody from finding his lair. And that and the part where he like falls in the water and there's the spikes coming in after him, stuff like that. Those are all big parts of the book of Raul almost dying and like other people falling into these traps and stuff like that. So I know there's a lot of criticism for those being in the movie because they're not in the stage performance because the movie's supposed to be an adaptation of the stage performance. But for me, as somebody that's read the book and actually liked the book, you know, one of the two books I've read in my life, (laughs) I really like that they actually brought those in because it brings a much more generalized aspect. It teaches you more about the Phantom. In the stage performance, you know nothing really about the Phantom. Yeah, he's more of a mysterious, uh, unexplained character. I mean, I've never particularly liked Raul in either incarnation, either the stage performance or the movie. Well, I mean, supposed I to be a spoiled dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and some people actually thought that Patrick Wilson's portrayal of him was even worse in the movie than the way he's portrayed in, in the stage production. But, I mean, either way, yeah, that's why I was saying it's like, how much of it is it really a, a real romantic love triangle type of thing? It's like, yeah, he's just a spoiled prick. He's rich, and that's it. <laughs> But they, they grew up together. And they yeah, they were, they were they tra- were it was implied they're childhood friends. I don't know if they were childhood sweethearts, but they knew each other as children. Yeah. And there may have been some mutual affection that they were just too young to express. Yeah. But he clearly wanted her as his wife and achieved that. Although yeah. that happens, obviously, in the gap between, because we see him as an old man years after her death, going back to get the music box. I feel like we should also quickly point out the creepy factor of at least her and Raul are about the same age. Yeah. Whereas, because she's only supposed to be like 16 or something like that in this, somewhere around in there. Raul's probably 18, 19, somewhere around in there. Mm-hmm. And the Phantom's like 35 or something. Yeah. Yeah. So that was probably the but other. But back act. then, that wasn't necessarily that abnormal. No. Yeah. In the time setting of what we're set in. But that's why I was like, again, I was, I was never, I could see the Phantom being enamored with her because she was beautiful and he was lonely. And she's talented and all that stuff. And she's talented and all that stuff. And I could see her being very appreciative of everything that he's done for her. And again, the connection with her father. This is the angel of music that my father said would look over me. But the whole idea of was there really love, like romantic love for Christine and the Phantom? I guess maybe maybe it was just that element wasn't, the romantic element of it wasn't as important to me. Yeah. I guess so. maybe that's why I never really thought too much about it. Yeah, for me, it was the romantic element between her and Raul was just there. Mm -hmm. The romantic element between her and the Phantom was he worshipped her and she was curious about him. Like, she had feelings, she knew there was something there, but she just never got deep enough. She never knew him enough to love him. And that was, I think you get into that at the end of, right before Music of the Night. You know, she wakes up, she takes the mask off of him. That curiosity is, who are you? Like, she's just trying to figure out, who are you? Right. Are you real? Are you just exactly. a dream I'm having? Right, exactly. So yeah. I think that was kind of her starting to explore that. And then her giving the mask back to him after that song was her saying, oh, it doesn't matter to me, but if it matters to you, here's your mask back. Right. 
So that, that's how I took it anyway. And again, in this aspect, it showed, and, and to me, what I think that song showed was he cared about how, how he looked more than other people cared about how he looked. And her interaction with him showed that. I don't know if we get that as much in the stage show, but in the movie, at least, that's, that's what I got out of it. To me, that, that kind of hits home for me, too, where it probably bothers me more than it bothers other people. Well, I think in the movie, it's, I mean, again, we watched the 25th anniversary special. It's recorded, but the cameras are zooming in on the stage. Yeah, it's kind of like halfway in between the stage performance and the movie. Right. Whereas in, like, the movie, you can see facial expressions and more yeah. direct thing. Whereas when you're watching the stage performance, you kind of have to have to fill that, those parts in with your imagination. Because even if you have really good seats, you can't really see too well what's going on. And, and also one thing that a lot of people skip over is the fact that the, the musical has been adapted. The stage performance. It's not the same stage performance today as it was initially. Right. They've changed it. They've adjusted it. They've perfected it. They've made a lot of alterations to make it the story make more sense, make the lyrics make more sense, and to add a little bit more of those romantic elements that maybe weren't quite as obvious before. Yeah. I mean, because I think one of the lingering... Well, for some people, again, this was the other sort of spirited debate that I would get into. People was like, was Christine ever really happy? Yeah, she married Raul, but did she just marry the rich guy? Would that really, ha would she have been happier with the Phantom? Or her, we, we never, we never see that aspect. We just go from that. She leaves with Raul and then we jump forward in time yeah. and she's dead. So who knows? And did she go on to continue to sing? Was she a performer? That's what I was going to ask. What, what did she do with her life? Was she just the dutiful wife of Raul? Or was she actually a star of, of the stage? Yeah, did she just become life? a baby maker? Or did she keep going with her passions? Yeah, exactly. Did she have to give up on her passions for this love? Or was love actually her passion? Right. As I've gotten older, some of those female friends of mine from college have come back to that as a re... They didn't see it this way when we saw it in college, but the whole of, are you choosing your career or your family? Mm -hmm. And then, and so they had a different spin on it or a different perspective on it. Yeah, in college, maybe they would have wanted to go for the bad boy, Phantom, but now it's like, yeah, I like my husband having money. So maybe now they want Raul, but back then they wanted the Phantom. Yeah. And they, they basically have looked at that. And again, like I say, it was like, which way would have had Christine's life turn out happier? That, again, I don't think too much about that. Not just not to be gender stereotypic, but I'm also never got married. So yeah. I can't look at that in terms of evaluating whether that would have been an avenue for happiness or not. But my married female friends... <laughs> have looked at that dimension of it and have pondered it. As well as thinking about that again, to call the Phantom the bad boy stereotype is a really stupid oversimplification, but that's one way you can interpret yeah. it. So I actually do think about that part a lot, but okay. not so much in a relationship aspect, but more of a, I really like making music, but I suck at it because I've never practiced. <laughs> so the way I look at it is, do I follow my passion and work really hard to become a musician, knowing that most likely I'm going to fail? Or do I put my passion away and go for happiness on another route, which is much more reliable? And if I go the reliable route, I'm going to be upset because I'm missing that passion. If I go the passion route, who knows where it's going to go? It's another way to, to look at it, to take the genders out of the equation and take the romance out of the equation of like, yeah, what path And that's you... what I do. <laughs> if you want to take out the romance, come see Mike. He sucks <laughs> it all right out. But my whole point there was that the whole idea of, in a more general sense of, yeah, you need to make a living. You need to find something that will provide you with shelter and, and food and money for other things. It would be awesome if that also happened to align with your passion. Like in your case, you would love to have been a professional musician and made a career in that way. Mm -hmm. That would have been probably the most aligned path of happiness for you. But everyone has to make that decision of which way yeah. should you go. And like you said, you don't know. Maybe if you had studied music, maybe you would have. I mean, I'm not saying you would have been a, a rock star, but you probably could have had a career in music yeah. in some capacity. Would that have been a different way than the quote-unquote safe choice that you made? I'm making fun of that because Mike works in safety. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's your career, that's how you make money, that's your livelihood, but your passion is, or one of your passions is music. Yeah, I took the path of more reliable and I'm living a miserable but comfortable life. Versus if I'd have gone passionate, I may have been happier, but I also may have failed completely and be living on the streets. Sometimes people say misery loves company. Mike wonders if misery loves comfort. So a comfortable but miserable life. Yeah. As opposed to a following your passions and then maybe failing, not have been successful, but maybe that would have been more. Well, and and y'all have heard me. I would have failed. So I probably made the right choice. Well, no. I mean, again, you've on many occasions said that you wish you had been taught how to sing. Oh, yeah. And you also taught yourself how to play most of the instruments you've played. So, I mean, if you had been trained, who knows? Maybe you would have been better if you had been taught well, how to I, sing. I would be better, but who knows if I'd be professional level or not. Right. Well, there's also the difference between professional and famous. There are a yeah. lot of workaday professional musicians whose name you've never known, but who make a decent living in the musical profession, just like there are a lot of like actors who are like character actors, workaday actors who make a decent, maybe like upper middle class salary as an actor whose names you've never heard of. So you mm-hmm. could be good enough to make it your living and work professionally. You might never become famous. You know, it'd be really nice if I could split the difference and be a voice actor. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be nice. Any uh, final thoughts on Phantom of the Opera? Uh, I think that's about it for me. Again, it's easily my favorite musical. It's not that I don't like other musicals, but if anyone was like, oh, wanted me to go see a musical, it's like if it was Phantom, no question about it, I definitely would go see it. Or even even watching the movie, again, going back to what I said before, it's not as good but I would watch the movie again. It's like, I have no problem with the movie. I enjoy it. It makes me remember the songs that I like, mm-hmm. and I might go listen to the soundtrack afterwards. But yeah, it's definitely, hands down, my favorite musical. Yeah. Easily same for me. I mean, like I said, I, I connect to every aspect of the story and the music. There's nothing I don't love about it. I don't think it could really be improved. I mean, yes, the movie could use better musicians, better singers, but I think... To find the better singers, you would lose some of the passion, some of the acting, some of the nuances. So I, I think they picked a happy medium, and I think that's about as good a job they could do with the movie. I don't think they could do much better than what they did, especially bringing in aspects from the book that I really wish were in the musical. Though I can't imagine a better stage performance either. Like I said, the sets are fantastic. The music's fantastic. Everybody's always done a very good job. And I think unsung haha, hero... is actually the the person that's always playing Carlotta. Because to be able to sing well enough to hit those notes, but also to make it sound horrible but good at the same time, Mm -hmm. to me takes possibly more talent than just hitting the notes as Christine. And I think the only, other than Sarah Brightman, I think it's probably Carlotta's probably more talented than Christine in most cases of the production. Oh, yeah. In terms of the the range of singing that they have to do, and it's weird, but like you said, to intentionally sing poorly, because there are times when, like, that is being forced upon her by either her anxiety or the phantom screwing with her, to make it sound that way. Yeah. To be that good, but also be able to believably be that. It's like like the weird thing where you see, like, it's usually overdone and it comes out silly— But when, like, good actors try to pretend like they're bad at acting, it usually comes off very stilted. Matt Damon. Matt Damon. But, yeah, so Carlotta's probably the most musically talented character in both. Well, other than in the movie, obviously, it's dubbed. But, like I said earlier, Minnie Driver's acting is what makes that character more entertaining. Yeah. She's not the one who's actually doing the singing. So, hey, if for some strange reason, I don't know why you would have listened to this episode if you haven't, but if you have never listened (laughs) to any of the songs from The Phantom of the Opera, at the very least, you should do that. Yes. And fuck the critics. Watch the movie. The Phantom of the Opera movie is good. Watch the movie and then listen to the soundtrack. And if it's still traveling, there's there's still coming back. I mean, the pandemic sidelined it a bit, but they're still going to be traveling shows of The Phantom of the Opera Go see the Phantom of the Opera in person, too. Yeah, I mean, now that I'm living a miserable, comfortable life, I can afford <laughs> to go to it every time it's here. So I'm, Exactly, I'm and a, a good seat, too. 
Yeah. Decent seat. I mean. Decent seat, yeah. Go see it if it's in town near you. Watch the movie. Don't fucking listen to the critics. And yes, get the soundtrack. Of either. I mean, you like the movie soundtrack, too. Yeah. I love the original stage production soundtrack. Either way, great songs, good enough movie, phenomenal play. The Phantom of the Motherfucking Opera. It's the best musical ever. Ever. Thank you for listening to Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating. Write a review. Reach out to us on Twitter at Fanboy and Hater. Email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for Android and iOS. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Once again, thanks for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater.